Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So good morning. It's good to be here with you. It really is. It's so exciting for me. I actually was uh, supposed to be a part of the group of pastors who were going to come uh, to particularize your church. If you're wondering what that word means, it just means to uh, to transition you to being uh, a church that is self-governing through elders and then also having deacons that are yours. And so because those plans changed, I had already made plans at my church to have uh, one of my uh, guys preaching for me. And so I said, Justin, I'd just love to come be with your people. And so thank you for giving me that opportunity. Uh, it's exciting uh, to be here uh, with you. We love your church. We love Justin and Angie and uh, your leaders. And so uh, just a great privilege to me. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you can. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 131 this morning. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the screen behind me as we read together. This psalm is a part of the psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent, that are the songs that the pilgrim people, as they journeyed throughout the land to Jerusalem for the feast, they would sing as they go. And really, I found myself pondering that section of psalms quite a bit in this period of time that we're in. We've left whatever normal used to be. It is no more. And yet we're not quite to whatever the world is going to settle into being once some of this is behind us. We're kind of on the way in many ways in these days, and so these psalms are very appropriate. This one in particular, Psalm 131, that we're going to read together here. Hear God's Word as I read the song, uh, a psalm of David. O Lord, he says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Now Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher in London, he said that Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. And so to get right to the point, the psalmist says, you'll notice there, verse 2, I've calmed and quieted my soul. And here's my question to you, are you calm and quiet? Not is the room, because I know kids are in here. It's not going to be that way necessarily for us this morning, and that's okay. But you, how about you? Are you calm and are you quiet in the inner parts of your life? Because that's what we're after. That's what we need. Let's be honest. That's what the world needs. That's what our nation needs right now, for people of faith to be composed and reasonable and full of courage despite the cultural storm raging around us. You know, anytime there's a conflict in a system, whether that system is a family or, um, or an organization, a company, or even a nation— It's because there is a collective anxiety among the people that are a part of that system, and it takes someone who can be joyful, hopeful, a non-anxious presence for the whole system to become healthy. There's a man named Edwin Friedman who's written about this, and he says that that that, that non-anxious person, that person who's able to remain calm and peaceful and hopeful in the midst of the chaos, that person is the leader, a peacemaker who can change the culture, change the surroundings by the strength they possess within. Now, there's actually an example of this very thing in our Bible, in the Gospels. There's a story that's told there of Jesus and his disciples uh, as they 
are caught in a storm that begins to rage on the sea where they were traveling, and the disciples begin to panic. The storm around them, right? They're in the middle of this, this terrible storm, and the waves are crashing over their boat, and so the storm around them became a storm within them. And if you know the story, you know that as this is happening to them, Jesus is in the boat with them, but he is not reacting quite the same way that they were. In fact, he's asleep. They're quite upset about that. And so they go and they wake him up. And as they wake him up, when he becomes awake, he stands in the bow of the boat and he speaks peace. He's so at peace within. Just refer to him. He, uh, preaching on Jesus and the disciples in the storm, he made this application. He says this. He says, he that hath peace can make Sleeping, the sleep, sleeping his sleep, sorry, we shall awaken his rested energy and treat the winds and the waves as things subject to the power of faith and therefore to be commanded into quiet. Our calm shall work marvels in the little ships whereof others are captains. We too shall stay. Peace, be still. Our confidence shall prove contagious and the timid shall grow brave. Our tender love shall spread itself and the contentious shall cool down to patience. Only the matter must begin with ourselves. We cannot create calm Till we are calm. Now, there are very two very different ways of living your life. The storms around you can become storms within you and create all kinds of unsettledness and disquiet within, or the peace and the calm within can begin to come out and create peace and calm everywhere you go with everyone you're around. Well, which is true of you? My wife used to say to our kids uh, when they were little, are you being a peacemaker or are you being a troublemaker? Which is true of you. Christianity has the spiritual power to make you like Jesus and not like the disciples. To be a peacemaker wherever you go because you're at peace, you're calmed and quieted within. Not a troublemaker because you're so troubled on the inside. And so that's what we want to talk about as we look at this psalm this morning, a calm and quiet soul. We want to see a couple of things from this text. It's a very, what, four verses? Three verses? We want to see the definition and then also the strategy for living with a calm and quiet soul And then thirdly, the power that can come into your life to make you how the psalmist describes here, okay? So let's ask a number of questions of the text. And the first, I think, would be, what exactly is this calm and quiet soul? Verse 2, look there again. I have calmed and quieted my soul. That phrase refers to an inner repose that is unaffected by external circumstances. So the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, in a pretty famous verse, you know, series of verses put it this way. He said, I have learned in whatever circumstance to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to be abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and then, and then the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul says, life is a roller coaster. It's up and it's down. You know, it's, it's crests and it's valleys. And the tendency is for your insides to go up and to go down with it. When things are up, you're up. And when things are down, you're down. And that's natural. That's the way things naturally work. But here's the problem. It's down right now, isn't it? It's been so for a while. And we're seeing all of these troubling signs of the way our inner lives are mirroring these circumstances that we're going through. I mean, this is a time of want, not plenty. And so it's natural to be down. Our lives naturally 
track with our external circumstances. But Paul says there is something different that can be yours in Christ. In Christianity, there's a supernatural power to go through all of the ups and downs of life and not inwardly, emotionally get on the roller coaster ride. And so the word Paul uses there in those verses is the word content or contentment. He says, no matter what, I'm, I'm content. I'm at peace. I'm at ease. I'm quiet inside. I'm satisfied. Probably the most familiar synonym in the Bible would be that word peace. And so earlier in that passage in Philippians 4, I promise this is a sermon on Psalm 131, but that it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of similarities there. But he, he says just before, he says, rejoice. Don't be anxious. Give thanks and let God know what you need, and the peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. And the imagery there is that peace is like a a guard. It's a a sentry or like a a fortress. It's a castle. When you've inwardly, when you have peace, when your soul is calmed and quieted, like we read here, it's like it puts up protective walls so that the threat that's on the outside, whatever's happening around you, whatever's happening in your life, it can't get in. So no no matter how bad things may be out there, in here, you're safe. There's no change. The storm is raging out there, maybe. But in here, it's quiet. It's calm. A calm and quiet heart. Don't you want that? Don't you need that? The world needs people armed with a calm and quiet soul like that. Now, the next question would be then, obviously, well, then how can you get an inward life like this? And here... Here is a bit of a surprising answer, at least it was for me, and I'm going to say it this way to you. The psalmist counsels that if you want a calm and quiet soul like this, you need to cultivate a life of humility. And I use the word cultivate on purpose. Notice the language. Now, in another famous passage in the prophets in Zephaniah chapter 3, this really famous imagery, it talks about the way that God quiets us with his love. He sings songs over us, and his love is such a powerful force that it can come. When you, when you really understand the way he loves you, that it can really create this inner calm and repose. But we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But here the psalmist is saying something different. He's saying you've, he's taking himself in hand, as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say. He's, he's saying, you know, I've got to do something about my inner life. I've got to take control of myself a bit here. He's proactively doing soul maintenance. He's saying, I've got to wrestle myself towards this calm and quiet soul. And there are two things specifically that he's seeking to prune away from his life. He's cultivating humility and the first is unruly, sinful ambition. So let's follow the, the logic that he lays out for us here. He says, O oh Lord, verse 1, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now, we learn a lot about the way ambition works from these lines. The heart is the very first thing. Look there, it says it becomes lifted up with a desire for glory and fame so as to be exalted ahead of everyone else. But then the eyes come next. They set themselves on some lofty goal, something more, something better, something bigger, whatever it might be. And then the hand reaches out to grasp and to take. And so you have the heart and the eyes and the hand all working together. And then, you know, and, and if the psalmist is to be believed, then a life of achieving and grasping and winning which is the way so many live, is actually the opposite of a calm and quiet soul. It results in restlessness. St. Augustine talked about this quite a bit, actually. In his experience, he said you can win, and you can get to the top, 
And you can get to the goal and you can realize in that moment that you're just as empty and anxious as you were before. Actually, when you actually do finish the race, when you get to the end, when you achieve the goal and it doesn't change anything, it's even worse because you feel disappointment instead of exhilaration. And it increases the anxiety because you realize, okay, even this can't satisfy my heart. You reach the finish line and and you realize that it's just the start of the next race. It's just the start of the next competition. And on and on it goes. And so be careful of sinful, unruly ambition. Not appropriate ambition. Let's be careful. Sinful, unruly, sinful ambition. But the opposite, so the opposite there is of sinful, unruly ambition is not humility. It's actually sloth, which is one of the seven deadly sins if you're into such things. And sloth is the sin of not caring. It's a sin of apathy and boredom. Uh, and so James, Jamie Smith, he wrote this. He says, we sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. <laughs> but this imagining is often just a thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. And so this is the second thing that we uh, should see the psalmist warning us of. He's seeking to prune away from his life. It's a symptom of not growing up, to be honest, of not cutting the apron strings, as Eugene Peterson actually translates it here. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. That is, like a child who's growing up, who's already leaving her mother behind and venturing out into her own. And so we have to walk the gauntlet of these two things. It's one thing to think too much of yourself and occupy yourself with things too great for you. It's just as spiritually dangerous to think too little of yourself and occupy yourself with things too small for one who is made in the image of God. Made to rule and have dominion over the earth. Made like Jesus to stand in the storm and speak peace and there be peace. And so humility is this golden mean. A humble person doesn't take themselves so seriously. They can enjoy the small things in life, like a sunset or a family dinner or the pleasure of a hobby. But a humble person isn't afraid to risk either. They're not afraid of the big stuff. They don't think of themselves too much, and they don't think too much of themselves. And so how do you become a person like that, right? How do you become a person who's able to walk the gauntlet where you're not afraid of the spotlight, but you don't, but you don't glory in it either, where you live this life of profound humility Calmed and quieted internally. Well, you have to go a little deeper into the image of the child with its mother here. So look at verse 2. It says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, what's that all about? What is it about this image of a weaned child? Well, when a baby who is still nursing climbs into the lap, you know, into his mother's lap, we know. We know he's there. We know what he's there for, right? He, he's there to, to because he wants something from mom. He's on the take. But when a child who's been weaned climbs up into mom's lap, she's there not because there's something she wants, not because she's on the take. She's there because of love. And that's the transition that has to take place in all of our lives if we're going to find this calm and quietness within. Now, a spiritually immature person relates to God because he is useful. He uses God to get things from him that he thinks he really wants. He doesn't want God. He wants God's gifts. 
And people who operate in this mindset, either consciously or subconsciously, it can work either way, honestly, fall into what we call performance-based religion, which really is something different than Christianity. It says something like this. If I want God's gifts, a good life, health, career success, you know, my my kids to turn out okay, whatever it might be, I've got to do what God says. I've got to be good because we all know that God is good to good people and he's bad to bad people. And so I have to earn his favor by living a good life and making sure I do all the things that he expects of me. And that is the way most people think about about their relationship with God. It is the why beneath so much of our ambition, if you want to go back to ambition for a minute. Right? It's the why behind our ambition. We don't even know it. We're busy. We're achieving because we just want the Father in heaven to look at us and say, well done. But it's also the why behind... Our sloth, it's easier to not care than to fail and have God disapprove of us or to have to face, you know, the reality of failure. Again, you may not feel it, but your emotional life is lived toward God like that because you were made for him and, and you'll be restless and anxious as long as that, as, the, as, long as that relationship isn't right. If this isn't right, if, if there's a, a wrong idea in the way we're trying to relate to him, then everything, not only here, what's going on inside here, but everything that comes out of this is all going to go wrong. And so Eugene Peterson has this great line. He says that our lives are lived well only when they're lived in the, on the terms of their createdness with God loving us and be in us being loved with God making us and us being made. The spiritually immature person uses God. There's no love. It's just a business transaction. That's what Christianity is for them. But there's only one thing that can calm and quiet your soul, and that is to have a relationship with God like the relationship between a wean child and her mother, verse 2. Because the wean child isn't thinking about what she can get from mom. She's just enjoying being wrapped in mom's arms. And your soul will never be right. You will never find calm and quiet within until you know first that God loves you indeed. But not only that he loves you, but that you know that it's all grace, that you know how he loves you, that you know it's, it's just grace. And so let me just finish with those two things. I told you I adore uh, the passage in Zephaniah, which um, talks about the Lord rejoicing over us with singing, that God sings a love song over us, and that that is the thing that can calm and quiet our, our souls. He will quiet you by his love, the prophet says. And uh, I, there, a story from my own family. When my girls, I have two boys and two girls. The two boys are older, the two girls younger. And when the, the girls were much younger, I would sing them a lullaby every night as I put them to bed. It's from an Andrew Peterson album. Uh, and I won't, I won't try to sing it for you. We don't need that, but um, I can just tell you the lines. But it just, beautiful girl, daddy loves you. He loves you, most beautiful girl in the whole wide world. And I would sing this every night to my girls, put them to bed and pray for them and sing, sing to them. Uh, and I remember uh, not long ago, they're, they're teenagers now, but even as teenagers, I have one, my, the, the baby in our family, she sings in the shower. And when I tell you she sings, I mean, the girl sings top of her lungs as she, and it just I love it because I know she's happy and it wasn't too long ago that we were around the house and Sarah who was there uh was was doing her chores or it may have been that she was in the shower or whatever but as she's running around the house doing whatever top of her lungs she's singing beautiful girl daddy loves you he loves you. she's singing the lullaby it's just coming out of her as she's just doing some menial thing, and it was the absolute best to see that the love song that I had sang over her at night, night after night, was sitting on her soul. 
and that she knew, she knew that she was loved because it was coming out in in what she was singing. It was just right there. She's cleaning her room. And I wonder, do you know that God loves you like that? Does his love song sit on your soul like that? Dane Ortland calls it a felt awareness of God's heart. And if so, you will be able, like the psalmist, to avoid unhealthy ambition and sloth, find the gauntlet of humility and calm and quiet your soul. But a second question, not only do you know that God loves you, let me ask this question. Do you know how God loves you? Do you know that it's all grace? That is, that it's not dependent upon your performance at all, good or bad. I mean, Christianity, we've already said, is not religion. It is gospel. It is not advice about what you need to do. It is news about what has been done for you. And the good news is just this, that Jesus Christ, God himself, has come to earth to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death on the cross that you deserve to die. And he lived before God as you. He died upon the cross as you. He has been risen and raised from the dead as you, and now, because he has done all of that as you, now God loves you as him. That's what we mean by the gospel. And so humility is self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking, it's, you know, it's, it's not thinking about you so much. Well, I wonder, do you know that God and his love for you isn't thinking about you either? He isn't impressed with your successes. He isn't frustrated with your failures. He loves you for Jesus' sake. That's what our gospel teaches. And so you don't have to be achieving. You can you can't improve on what Jesus has done for you. Can we just can we just take a deep breath for a minute? Let's just sigh into that. Let's collapse into that for just a minute this morning. We can't improve on what Jesus has done for us. And so we don't have to be afraid of failure. Because if your soul is resting in Christ, the verdict is in. God has already decided. So there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Isn't that great? So take a deep breath. It doesn't all depend upon you, right? Like your phone tells you, breathe. Breathe and calm and quiet your soul with the truth that God loves you, but that he loves you for Jesus' sake and it's all grace. Now, what does that have to do with our current situation? Well, There are sure to be, even in front of us, many highs and lows in the days to come, but don't get on the emotional roller coaster. Take yourself in hand, like the psalmist does here. Don't wait for God to quiet you. Calm and quiet yourself by reminding yourself of the truth, that whatever is in store, God hasn't abandoned us. We're not being punished. We're being weaned. I mean, he's weaning us. I mean, and the moms have advantage over the dads here because they know for the fussiness that goes with that process. It's not easy. And God is weaning us to mature our faith. And it's a good work for him to do because in the end it means more faith, more joy, more peace, more happiness. And those are the things that we need to be the kind of leaders that he would call us to be even in our nation in these days. And so the psalm ends, verse 3, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist finishes by reminding us that we live towards hope. And hope refers to the future that we're certain of but not yet experiencing. It's not here yet but it's coming. And in all of the Christian life, you're living toward things that are not yours in the present. And so hope doesn't look at tomorrow through the fears and worries of today. Hope reimagines what is right now in light of the promise of what is on the way. It doesn't move from today forward into the future. It moves from tomorrow backwards. And we know what tomorrow means. Tomorrow, tomorrow's the happily ever after. 
Tomorrow is the time when the spell will finally be broken and the magic will fall from the sky, making everything beautiful again. The snow will thaw. Spring will come. Aslan is on the move. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means resurrection for you and I too. That's our hope. And to quote Dostoevsky and Brothers Karamazov, something so precious is coming to pass that it will ultimately suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments. Every tear sown will become joy harvested. Every death will become resurrection. Every temporary suffering and sadness we go through will, will be an eternal weight of glory. That is our hope. And so the psalmist says, hope in the Lord. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Lord of the Rings geek. I don't know if Justin, I don't know, I don't know if that gets into sermons here, but my people get restless and they know something's wrong with me if we don't talk about it at least once every couple of months. Uh, But one of my favorite scenes in the book, in The Lord of the Rings, is a scene where it's the very darkest moment of the three books when all seems lost. I won't give away any cliffhangers, but Sam, who is the hobbit, who is Frodo's companion, he looks up into the sky in this bleak moment and he sees a star that's shining there in all of its blackness. And just listen to Tolkien's words. He says, And the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing, that there was a light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Beautiful words. Hope is the ability to look up out of whatever you're going through now to the future that God has promised and to be pierced by the beauty of it in order to get the proper perspective that compared to the joy that is coming, whatever cross we endure now, even in these long months past, even in the months to come, it's a small and passing thing. And then wrestle your heart into calm and quiet with the truth of it. There's an old hymn that is a perfect example of this. It was written by a man named Edward Bickersteth. And so listen to the back and forth between the two lines in each stanza. He poses a question, a nagging doubt, and then immediately provides the answer. He's, he's modeling for us what it looks like for us to talk to our hearts instead of listening to our hearts, to take ourselves in hands. He says this, Peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin? Yes, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. Peace, perfect peace, with sorrows surging round? On Jesus' bosom, naught but calm is found. Peace, perfect peace, our future, all unknown? Yes, because Jesus we know, and he is on his throne. Amen. Let's pray together.